0: Hey everybody welcome back to the hustle it's John Lamoureux okay this week is another huge one huge for me I think it's huge for a lot of you too It is the fifth of the seven Stevens Steven Street one of my favorite producers of all time as well now I think most people know that name and they probably associate that name with a few major artists first up is the Smiths he was an engineer on those first few Smiths albums took over as producer on Strange Ways, Here We Come, and then he started working with uh, Morrissey closely on his first solo album, Viva Hate. And he's got stories about all of that in here as well. That's why you're listening to Every Day is Like Sunday, one of the greatest songs ever, which Stephen co-wrote and plays a lot of. Now there's some issues there around royalties and credit and whatnot, and so he and Morrissey don't work together again. But he moves on to Blur. And he does several Blur albums, especially the big ones, like Park Life and The Great Escape and stuff like that. So we hear all about Blur. There's also the Cranberries. He produces the first couple Cranberries albums, the huge ones, and he does the last album that came out after Dolores passed away. And then there's also the Kaiser Chiefs. He did their big albums as well. They were never so big in the States, but they were huge in the UK and he did those. Along the way, there's also an album with Madness, an album with the Psychedelic Furs, an album with New Order, an album with Suede, and there's a bunch of other smaller projects too. They're not small to me because they mean a lot to me, but they might be to you. And In fact, some of the ones I asked him about that I knew he worked on didn't really elicit interesting stories or he didn't remember or there wasn't anything big about them. So some of those we cut out, but some of them we left in. Anyway... Stephen Street is one of the best there is. Always has been. He's up there on the Pantheon for me. I love this man. He called me from I don't remember actually. Probably London, but I'm not for sure. Okay, first and foremost, you. Stephen, I uh, I don't always go back to the beginning, but in you but with you I I am tempted to because I found it interesting in getting ready to talk to you that you're one of the greatest alternative rock producers in history. But from what I can tell, early on in your career, you really kind of earned your bona fides working in a lot of like uh, reggae and African music. Like I was listening to King Sunny aid yesterday to get ready to talk to you. Sunnyade, you, worked, yeah. you worked on this stuff, right? It's so good.
1: I
2: Yeah, well, it just happened to be that I was based very luckily at Island Records. And Island yeah. Records, I think, always had a great reputation of being, I mean, obviously a big supporter of reggae, obviously. And then from there on into world music. It was just a very eclectic label, Island. It was yeah. a fantastic label. And one minute you'd have Roxy Music, and then it would be you know, John Cale or or, or U2, you, you know, yeah. on, on, on the new wave side of things. But they were always very well connected with uh, world music and reggae, you know. So, yeah, it just happened to me because I was working at Island, got I it. couldn't got my fingers dirty working on that kind of music. Yes. As it were,
0: you know. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And I was listening, I talked to Steve Lillywhite, and he right, was yeah. there working yeah. with U2 and stuff like that too. And yeah. I, I just was thinking, how did the guy, how did the King Sunny aid guy because now, granted, you're in the office, so you're kind of working on whatever's coming through. But you become one of the greatest, especially guitar-specific producers ever. When I think of you, I think of a clarity to a, to the guitar, a certain kind of ringing or a certain kind of chime that no one else can accomplish but you. And so, how does how does like the Smiths get you and your marriage work out so perfectly with them? It's
2: weird. I mean, obviously, under um, the, the very, I was very lucky. Again, I was working at Ireland and that weekend they booked the studio to a night outside client, which was rough trade records. Mm-hmm. And uh, my manager kind of said to me, you know, I've got this band coming at the weekend. Would you like to do the session? Because at this point, I, I was just progressing from being one of the assistant engineers to engineering you know, uh, sessions in my own in my own right. Mm-hmm. And I'd only been a house engineer, you know, at this point that's probably for about four, four to six months or something. Uh, but I said, yeah, absolutely, I'd love to do it. I was aware of the Smiths. So I'd heard this charming man on top, you know, on Top of the Pops, which is a TV programme that you might know about we, we watch over here in the UK, or we used to. Yeah. And so I was very aware of uh, Abe Morris's vocal delivery and then obviously Johnny's guitar work, you know, and and, and you're right, when you kind of touch into that kind of, uh, you know, the kind of Afro guitar sound, that mm-hmm. kind of that very bright jangly thing. Mm, there was, a, there was a similarity between that and that guitar line at the beginning of, um, uh, you know, This Charming Man, that kind of high life
0: guitar. You know? Yes, I hadn't made that um, connection, you're
2: right. So, but I mean, that, that, I don't know whether Johnny really had concentrated on learning that kind of thing from African music. Only he could answer that for you. But the way he had assimilated it into his own guitar playing and writing was, to me, kind of quite obvious. So this wasn't a guitar player who's going to stamp on his foot on a distortion pedal and just hit six strings at once. You could tell there's a lot of dexterity to what Johnny played. So yeah, I was always kind of keen on capturing that myself as an engineer, mm-hmm. and I learned very quickly over Spurball. Uh, very quick, but even kind of over time as well, kind of, kind of nurtured this thought that it's the combination of the guitar and the amplifier that really works. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, an amp- you, you can have one amplifier that be good at a particular tone, but it's not going to be good for everything. Mm-hmm. So it was it was down to the the tools that the guitar player uses and mm-hmm. picks for themselves was mm-hmm. really important. Mm-hmm. And also down to their playing, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I, I've been very lucky. Obviously, I've worked with some great guitar players over the years, but Johnny stands out, and obviously, so does Graham Cox. And-
0: That's what I was just going to say. Yep.
2: And I mean, I mean, I mean, Graham will—he's uh, completely different to Johnny in the sense that he will—he's kind of—he likes to distort things, but not yeah, just I've- actually, but not just with distortion pedals. He just likes to, you know, <laughs> pull strings out slightly and yes. use. Kind of hammer ons and yes. you know things like that. You know he likes to he plays it from a very different angle. Although he was quite you know obviously inspired by The Smiths in his early days. And you know sometimes I get a young guitarist to say, oh, "Can you make me sound like Graham Coxon?" I say, "Well, or Johnny Martin I say, "Well, no, I can't. I can do the best I can as far as you know, advising you as to the amplifier and the guitar. But the rest of it comes from your touch. You know, it's yeah. your fingers on the neck that are going to make it sound like that. Yeah. You know."
0: Yeah. I'm not coming to they answering that question. No, but, that's know. exactly it. That's what I'm curious about. It's interesting. You, I hadn't, Graham and Johnny, especially among British guitarists of the last 40 years or whatever, are two of the greats. But you're right. Graham's, Graham has ability to capture some fuzz that no one yeah. else quite does. And yeah. Johnny has an ability to capture some, some clean clarity like no one else does. Yeah, and yet, yeah, you absolutely. and so I'm curious you mentioned the uh, the amplifiers. I'm guessing it's not a matter of I like this amplifier I want everyone to use it. It's finding the right amplifier to go with the right guitar player to get the right yeah. sound.
2: Combination okay. of the pickups on the guitar, yes. guitar player himself or herself and the right amp, you know, I mean, and and this is why when I'm in the studio, often with bands uh, well, I always like, I always like to try and work with their equipment first, because you know, that's the sound they developed in the rehearsal by using their gear, I don't see the point in saying, right, here's a brand new Marshall stat, use that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's got to be try that first, but if we're not getting the tones we want from that, then it's always good to have a couple of different choices. Yeah. So you know, over the years, I've used, you know, a combination of Fox amplifiers and Fender amplifiers and Gibsons, i oh, thought Gibsons, Marshalls. Mm-hmm. And um, they all have their own uses and their own times when they can really shine and their times yeah. when they're not quite right for the right
0: yeah. part. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so you may have been asked this a billion times in your life, but I don't know the answer. Tell me about then the creation of How Soon Is Now. I'm assuming you were there.
2: No, see the thing is How Soon Is Now is one of those sessions that I did not work on. So Really? Yeah, so this is quite an embarrassing thing. <laughs> I've been asked this many times, but I've got a hat on my hand and say, no, that wasn't me. That was John Porter. Because at the time I was working with the Smiths, so I every now and then that they would go and work with John Porter, because John uh-huh. Porter produced their early singles. And Uh, I I think I always had the kind of impression that I was very much Morrissey's choice to work with and sometimes Johnny wanted to work with John Porter Mm. and that is certainly the case on that, you know. But that was originally recorded, I think, to be a B-side. It wasn't, uh, it was a B-side to William, it was really nothing, you know, originally. Uh. So I think the re- one of the reasons why it works so well is because they weren't feeling any pressure,
0: but I can't really say much more than that because okay. I wasn't in you weren't involved thing. in like the tremolos and the experimentation. No, of getting that. Obviously sound. I've been working with Johnny and many other things around yes. the same time. You know, yes. I mean, I think that,
2: you know, we, we just recorded, um, most of the album of *Meet His murder mm-hmm. and i was learning my trade then i'm still a very young engineer myself so i didn't know everything now i listened back to some of those recordings and i'm thinking god i could have done that better i could have done this better
0: mm-hmm.
2: um but then again you never stop learning
0: and especially in no, no. this game you know you're
2: always learning something new.
0: so let me ask you then some specific i mean the smiths are one of mine and most people's favorite bands ever let me ask you about a song like barbarism begins at home which goes on for like six or seven minutes. And it's a lot of powerful guitar squawking. I love that sound. Is that a decision that like, do you and Johnny say, does Johnny come to you and say, I want to go off on this for a little while. I have some ideas. I want to just give me some space to do my thing. Or do you You think this song calls for it? Or does Morrissey say, this is what I want. How does a song like that come to be?
2: Well, the thing is, I mean, with with me as an engineer, if when it was just me in the studio with the band, you're mm-hmm. taking on certain production kind of um, roles in the sense that they're trusting you to get the sound that they want, mm-hmm. and uh, certain kind of parts of what you're doing are uh, uh, are kind of you're trying to make sure you're inspiring them so that when they come back in the control room, you know they're hearing yeah. what they want to hear rather than you know it not so. That particular track, I mean, I mean, I would always have, when I was working with Johnny, I would always have a couple of reverbs or a delay or something set up as a send, an auxiliary send, that I could put on his guitar to get automatically give him a sense of, you know, a sound, you know, straight away. But Johnny had a very good touch, as I said, and he normally knew himself straight away what guitar and what amp combination he wanted. It was then up to me with the microphone placement and also the effects that I might put on it to make it sound right for Johnny and Therefore, right for the band. Got it. Um, now, Barbara is actually one of those cases where I think we were going. I mean, I mean, we all know now that Johnny is a huge Nile, Nile Rogers fan. I mean, he even named his son after Nile. But mm-hmm. uh, but that wasn't something that was greatly kind of mentioned at the time. Mm-hmm you know, especially in the early Smith states. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a kind of a, a, a dance element to Barbarism yes. for sure. Yes. And that was one of the tracks, actually, that we did experiment. I mean, there's some big guitar sounds, and then there's a rhythm guitar part, which if I remember rightly, might have just been a died would guitar. That's, really? di- that's directly, you know, that guitar going, because yeah. i read somewhere, that's what Miles Rogers used to do with his famous Fender Stratocaster. So I think I suggested to Johnny, let's try that for that sound, that really clean, like kind of funky kind of sound. But that was also a track that we messed around with quite a lot on the mix. I mean, I I worked on quite, because in the early 80s, there was quite a a lot of new dance music, kind of Mm -hmm. the the, the new romantic thing. You know, there was a lot of dark kind of club music and lots of 12-inch club mixes and that kind of thing. And that kind of thing had crept into my kind of, Production ideas and so on. Mm-hmm. So that's why on that track you hear things like a cut of drums at one point and bring them back in again. And you know, all, all those kind of dropout things that mm-hmm. people used mm-hmm. to do on 12 inch mixes. Yeah. And we kind of incorporated that into the mix of that song. Yeah. So it's like a 12 inch mix on that one track, you know, because it was kind of, it, it could take
0: it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you listen
2: to it, especially in the last two minutes, there's lots of kind of, you know, like cuts on yes. the desk, taking yes. the drums out and lifting the bass sure. it, so, and all that kind of stuff.
0: And it was Fascinating. Fun. So then, tell me about working on Strange Ways because you get sort of promoted, so to speak, up to actual producer at that time. Is the band falling apart, like visually in front of your eyes as you're making? No, that I album? mean
2: it's it's kind of weird because a lot of people ask me this question because it was The Smiths' Swan Song, as it were. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that it was a horrible atmosphere in the studio and that that, that they were falling apart, but. They weren't really, they actually, uh, they hadn't written as much in preparation, I don't think. And there was a couple of songs already in the bag. "Girlfriend in a Coma we recorded months earlier Mm. when we were recording, um, I think, Sheila Take a Bow. And I think there might be one or other two songs that were kind of near complete. But a lot of those songs, uh, Johnny hadn't even heard what the vocal was going to be on it until we actually started in the studio. And actually, it was quite a, a productive, prolific time. but one thing was evident in the background at the time there was a new manager that had come on board to manage the Smiths oh. Oh. and Johnny really wanted this manager mm. and Morrissey didn't mm. and so that really was the crux of the problem and Johnny was fed up kind of hiring and firing people because it was always up to him to do it uh just at Morrissey's whim. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think Johnny got to the point. I thought, if I get rid of this manager, I've got months and months again. I haven't taken all the responsibility of keeping things, you know, ticking over. And he didn't want it. Yeah. And um, he just had had enough. I think you know there was a few mind games being played by Morrissey at the time. I believe it. Johnny was like, "I'm out of here." Yeah. But you know what, John, I really thought that it was just going to be a little tiff, and they'll be back together again within a few months. No one ever could have told that it would be the permanent split yes and then again that court case then you know completely yes put a full stop it's on everything it's never happening you know?
0: again no. yeah um so I have a bunch of questions about this one in particular you, it's interesting you I've had this hunch for years and you sort of confirmed it that they didn't have uh, quite enough songs when they went to the to make that album because songs like uh last night I dreamt that somebody loved me or death of a disco dancer these songs feel I like them but they feel a little padded
1: How little you know The death of a disco dancer Well, I'd rather not get involved I never talk to my
0: Because there's long stretches of instrumentals that, or an intro or whatever that goes on. And I yeah, wondered yeah. if that was a byproduct of, like you said, maybe not having something fully fleshed out before you got there. Yeah, they certainly
2: hadn't played those songs live. You know, like if you think about it, go back to the early albums, those songs have been bashed around live in concert and, in, and in rehearsal rooms and so on for ages. So there was. Uh, the, the shape put on those songs that you mentioned was, was probably put together in the studio. Mm-hmm. But then again, see, Johnny wanted to do, do, he did want to do things differently. He didn't want to do just, you know, three minute jingle jangle mm-hmm. guitar songs. He was very keen to stretch himself as a musician. And that's why, like, rushing a Push and the is ours for instance, mm-hmm. he kind of said to me, I'm playing keyboards to this, I'm not going to play any guitar. Johnny fucking Mar, the guitar hero, not playing guitar on the song. Let's see what that does to their heads, you know. And so he was up, Johnny was quite keen to push, you know, the boundaries of it. And I think we did use the studio much more as an instrument on that album compared to some of the others. And he had that, you know, he had in his mind this big kind of mellow soundtrack thing kind of building up to Last Night I Dreamt, you know. had an idea okay and that was quite fun because we just layered a very slow piano thing first and we just and a bit by a bit we we're playing around with moogs you know synthesizers and well noise and just crowd noise and just it was like a montage we just yes. really had fun with it yes. it didn't work out we thought if it doesn't
0: work out we'll just take
2: it off the front got it but it did kind of set the it mood it did
0: but oh it's yeah, gorgeous yeah. i've just i when you i was connecting these dots okay it sounds like these things were more, more thought out than i thought so i am curious because you go on then and Work on Viva Hate with Morrissey. Were you forced at any time to pick a side? Is was Johnny? Did Johnny view you going off and making Viva Hate as some kind of knock against him?
2: I don't know. I mean, you can only Johnny can answer that. I think for a while he most probably did consider me as being in the Morrissey camp and so on. But mm. I certainly didn't see it as taking sides. I mean, what, what basically happened is that after we finished a strange race, there was nothing really left in the can, and so when they broke up. Uh, they tried a session with another guitar player and it didn't work out for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And at this time, I'd, I, I had some cassette ideas. I had four-track, Fostex cassette, you know, like, like a lot of musicians had at the time, back in the 80s, for doing demos on and so on. And I had some demo ideas. And I sent them to Morrissey uh, with a little note saying, now, forgive me for being presumptuous, but if there's anything here... That could be possible to be used as a B-side or whatever. Just, I thought, you know, just to kind of help keep the thing. Because I really did not think they were going to be back together again in six months. So I thought this was just a you kind know, of case of keeping the ball rolling. Yeah. Uh, and I actually got married that August. Came back from a short honeymoon in Paris, and there was a postcard from Morrissey saying, "I've listened to the material you sent me. I, I want to lay the Smiths to rest and make a solo record." So it was like, "What? Really?" <laughs> you know. So I was um I was dumbfounded. I'm just yeah. like, what the hell, you know? But I mean, you know, he made up his mind. That was it. So that was as simple as that. I was trying to help to keep the thing going. Yes.
0: And yes. then, but Morrissey then kind of said, no,
2: I want to lay it to rest and I want to make a solo record.
0: Wow. Now, I, from what I understand, there have been conflicts around the royalties or the credit for songs like Every Day is like Sunday. Was that one of the songs in your in the pile that you gave to him?
2: Yeah, I mean, all those songs are Morrissey Morrissey Street compositions. They're Uh all kind of demos that I've done. Vinnie Riley was brought in as a guitar player to play the session because I'd worked with him in the duty column.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: When he came out with these claims, it was it was just very, very upsetting. And he's since admitted to me and he's uh, apologized. He said he oh, put it yeah. down to the medication he was on at the time because he was on antidepressants and all this kind mm. of thing. I don't want to go too heavily into that. Sure. But, you know, um, I've got demos, my cassette demos and things. And I've got notes, I've got paper, you know, of my chord sheets. I mean, that was one of the things when he said, well, I had to, I, you know, st- Stephen couldn't write songs. The chords weren't interesting enough. And I go, well, listen, actually, every day is like Sunday C, F, and A minor and G. The most basic chords that you can get, but that's what works. <laughs> I'm right, sorry, right? They are the chords that work for that song, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, it all got contested, but there was no—he knew he didn't have a leg to stand on when it actually came to going, you know, to court or anything like that. So it yeah. didn't get further. Than that. So I don't yeah. like to dwell on it too much because it's something he brought up, and I know there's a few YouTube interviews out there where he's casting dispersions, but it's, it's you know, it's all okay. right. All those yeah. songs did exist and it's proven because then when Vinny, we stopped working with Vinny, I carried on working with Morrissey and we did mm-hmm. uh, last the last famous International Playboys and Interesting so Drug and some other tracks you know the, the B-side slow singles as well
0: So, I mean, I think you, every every day is like Sunday to me, still to this day, is just a masterpiece of atmosphere, of beauty, of guitar work, of the strings, of the whole thing. How did how did you and Morrissey work together, or even did you, um, to create that sound? When I was talking with, I mentioned Steve Lillywhite, and he was saying, because he's worked on some Morrissey albums too, and he, he was has, like, yeah, yeah. you know, Morrissey doesn't actually... Have much of a say. He kind of stands back and lets you do make he a lets lot you of do it. He lets you know saying. if he doesn't like it. Right, right. He doesn't kind of say, I need to do this, we need to do that. He'll just say, yeah. Can you
2: make it sound majestic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Can you make it sound wonderful? You know, he just yeah. you know, he just. But the thing is, is that the great thing about the Great Smiths records and the Great Morrissey records is that once you get that voice on there, then you know what you're dealing with. Yes. And you can tell, right, this is it. Yes. You know, and you know, as I said, you know the chord structure for Everyday like Sunday is pretty, pretty standard. You know, it's nothing, but it's what he puts on it. And then you know, and then you know, I, we had, you know, uh, I had some kind of lines, melody lines. I mean, that actually whole song was written around the bassline. And that song, my bassline, I was trying to write. Uh, a song as if it was being played by Echo and the Bunnymen. Because I used to love the basslines yes. Echo and the Bunnymen. That doom 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 doom, yes. doom 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 doom. Yes, doom. it was just so. That is that's the bassline dictated the chords. If that makes sense, you know. And that's it another thing I'd like to say because in the Smith stuff, it's not only Johnny's guitar that actually decides where Morrissey goes. It's Andy's bassline.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: They're very integral. They're not just playing a root note. They're oh. actually playing a counter melody, which honestly, often sometimes hits on more than the actual guitar part.
0: Yes. Fascinating. And you saying that, that song kicking off with the bass line like it does, almost the introducing what the song is going to be through that bass line, that yeah. makes so much sense why that's there. I yeah. get it. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's beautiful. Now, I have a weird, deep, nerdy question about that. I don't mind if you forget me is Vinny's just playing some squawking guitar constantly nonstop underneath. It doesn't even fit. It doesn't sound like it should fit with the song, and yet it kind of does.
2: Kind of I, mean, I was never totally happy with that one, to be honest. Oh, really? I, I like did. that song. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to write there a simple kind of Buzzcocks type song. You Oh, yeah. You know, that that was a thing, you know, it, that's the kind of thing I was trying to get. And I think Vinnie was trying to kind of sabotage his by doing this weird kind of like, you know, like, yes bell guitar kind of, you know, kind of, Yes. Solo underneath it all the time. So it's there. And I, I was on the mix. I was trying to kind of use it, but not, not having it so high in the mix. So it was it was a bit of a compromise that track. So it never really came. I wanted it to be really simple. You no, know, rejection is uh-huh. one thing. Yeah, like two notes. And then that was how I wrote. Down, 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 down. And it's the simple notes is me playing and yep. all the noodling
0: stuff is yes. Vinny. But there oh, you go. Wow. Yes, it because whatever Vinny's doing feels like a completely different song. And it's yeah. been, like, tapped into this song, you know? I thought, well, it, oh, yeah. Fascinating.
2: I think okay. I was going to come and play it, so I can't get rid of it all. But at the same right. time, I was like, no. ooh, I'm not sure. But, I mean, it is one of those things. I mean, you know, I, I was just happy the record was made at all because, yes. you know, I really did think it was going to be – well, I thought there was a few scenarios. I thought we were gonna make it and then Morrissey's gonna freak out before it even comes out and say, No, I'm not gonna do it, and it's not gonna ever see the light of the day. Mm-hmm. Or it was gonna come out and bomb and I'd be public enemy number one because everyone loved the Smiths mm-hmm. and Morrissey, so I would get all the blame. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, Sway Dead came out and it was mm-hmm. a bona fide hit, so mm-hmm. it was great. But and I was petrified that you know, I mean through the whole process,
0: was I bought the tape. First day it came out at Raspberry Records in Salt Lake City, Utah, I can tell you right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, okay, does Suedehead really have anything to do with James Dean, or is that just what the video does? I don't think so. That. I think
2: Morrissey just wanted to do a bit, you know, he, he loves yeah. his movie stars from that period and and yeah. uh it was never been one for a performance video really, was yeah. especially in that time anyway. So right. I think it was no, I, I I don't think it really is about James Dean as okay. such.
0: But do you know then who why do you come here when you know it makes me hard makes things hard for know. me? I mean
2: I, I only question you can ask there is Morrissey, you know. Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> I just wondered if you really? do, you know
2: Well, I mean I like, I mean they are they're love songs in a way, aren't they? Or relationship yeah. songs. But yeah. uh, I mean he's the one to ask about that.
0: Really. Okay. Okay. I've always been curious. Um, okay. <laughs> so the other big I mean there's many partnerships but one of the other big ones then is Blur and you come on my understanding and produce there's no other way. Again, talk about clean, clear guitar work. That opening riff is so great, and it announces that you're about to listen to a perfect pop song so perfectly. Um, how did your relationship with Blur become solidified? Why were you the guy that was the right partner for them as they continued to progress? You know, it's
2: weird because it could, it could have all gone really badly wrong. Um... So I mean, normally I mean back back in those days I mean normally it would be a band or an A and R department would contact me you know Mm -hmm. uh, say would you like to work with this band you know Mm -hmm. so normally I would be the approach I would be approached by them the other party but in this instance my manager at the time uh, Gail Coulson she was managing Jesus Jones and they were on the same label as Blur and I'd heard Blur's first single She's So High and I really liked it. So I said to Gail, my manager, look, next time you're talking to David Balf at Food, can you let them know that if they're looking for a producer, Stephen Street would be, you know, happy to be considered. And uh, she did. And Balf came back and said, no, the band are going to stick with the production team that done the first single, which is understandable because she's so high, you know, it was good. Anyway, for whatever reason, they did try a session. It didn't work out. And then so they went, actually, perhaps we would like to work with Stephen. Can we do a session? So... It was a test session, like, go in, do a few tracks with them. I think we did Come Together, which was another track on the album, Leisure. Off to America to work with the psychedelic first. Yes. and it came back two months later and there's no other way shooting up the chart it was like bloody hell you know. so this is amazing it's got great you know so um they asked me then oh can, can you do some more and i did about a third of that first album because they'd already started it with some other people as well did you do sing no, Scene was again there. Okay. They'd done it. I think they'd done it with just an engineer, that one. Was okay. a song that was self
0: produced, which is a great track. I, mean, I love awesome. that song, but it's not on the American version of that album.
2: Oh, is it not? Okay. No,
0: it's so frustrating.
2: Um, so, anyway, what happened was I did the record, uh, I did a, another single called Bang, which wasn't as good. And, Valve was uh, as totally kind of convinced that I was the right person to work with them. So uh, their next album, they were going to work with Andy Partridge from XTC. Oh, sure. And they tried recording and from what I can gather, um, it wasn't really going that great. And I bumped into Graham Coxon by chance, purely on chance. I I, went, I was going out to check out the Cranberries because I'd been asked to work with them. So I went to their, their London show at the Marquee. And I see Graham in the crowd and looking quite morose and a bit down. And I went up to him and I said, how's things going? He said, well, it's not going great. You know, we started the album, but it's not working out. Mm -hmm. And I just put my arm in and said, look, Graham, you're one of the best guitar players I've ever met. The band's great. I believe in you. It's going to work out. Don't you worry. Mm -hmm. And I think he must have gone back and spoke with Damon and said, you know, know, I saw Streety last night and uh, perhaps we should give him a call. Mm -hmm. So, you know, being outside the loop initially for the second album, they didn't got in contact with me and we did what became modern life is rubbish. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like us against the world in some ways. Cause they did feel like they were kind of like, you know, their backs were to the wall, you know? Yeah. And it worked out great. And yeah, I became like a big brother to them. You know, it was kind of nice. It was just a nice natural, mm-hmm. uh, relationship, which still goes on to this day, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, So it was just, it was just really, it just, it just worked. Sometimes you just click with people and they trust you and they like you and they're happy to put themselves in your hands while they're doing the most important thing to them, which is making
0: it right. Right. Did you, I mean, I, I don't normally ask questions like this, but I am curious as you're making park life, are you, are you cognizant of the fact that you're making one of the most important English music documents ever?
2: I knew we wanted something good. I knew uh-huh. that between the albums, after Modern Love is Rubbish and just as we were about to start doing the sessions for Park Life, I saw the guys play at Reading Festival and they were playing in the main tent there. So not the big outside stage, but the first big tent. Mm-hmm. And the atmosphere in that tent was absolutely electric. You could see there was a, there was a growing fan base mm-hmm. who loved the band. I thought, if we can get this next album right, because modern life is rubbish wasn't really a huge hit you know I mean the two singles had kind of got into the top 30 that you know they hadn't been massive but I knew once we started working on part life as an album there was there was a there was a wave and we just had to you know ride that and, and make sure that you know, we, we captured everything right and I always remember when we did girls and boys, said to Dave and I said, I think we've made a top five hit here, I really do. I think I think we've got this one dead right. Ironically, the track that was the hardest to capture, and when it, I, I just couldn't stand by the time we ended, the album was part-life itself. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur
1: of what is known as. A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John's got Brewer's proof, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him. Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise.
3: Get up when I want, except
2: on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. I put my trousers on, have a cup of tea, and I think about living. <laughs> I just couldn't stand it. I was like, ah, gonna be going down the houses on that one, you know. Right. But, but, but anyway, you know, it was it was one of those things. But as for the rest of the album, no, I mean,
0: I love it. It's, it's a yeah. I think my favorite, my favorite Blur song might be "This Is a Low." Yeah. It just hits me every single time, and was I was re- the last one to be finished. Was no. it really? Yeah. Okay, that that it makes sense. I um, to get ready to talk to you. I recently went back and listened to every Blur album. I have them all, and I've listened to them numerous times, but not in a row like that for a while. Yeah. And um, one thing that comes to mind with blur, most Blur albums is that as great as they are, there's often they leave they like to leave in what I would think would be sort of experimental B sides. In a lot of ways, they include that stuff on the album. Is that cognizant? Do you know what I mean by when I say that? Do you think that, or am I alone in that? I think
2: I I think in in Britain, a lot of bands kind of feel they want to do that because I think they're kind of inspired by albums like the Beatles. What the Beatles White Album, Mm, you know? Good point. That kind of thing, where yeah. We know he's not a top you know it's not a radio hit but we want to put this off and especially bands like Blur they like to kind of mm-hmm. push barriers a little bit you know and mm-hmm. and yeah you're quite correct I mean yeah I mean you'll get some people that all they want to do is put 10 bangers on an album mm-hmm. you know yeah. but they kind of willfully don't want to do that mm-hmm. that's what I want <laughs> yeah, and I think it is I think it is that kind of you know lineage that come, comes from the Beatles you know like Sod sort of the world big, yes. we're they're gonna do it because we're the Beatles and we're blur we're blur. We can do that and we're gonna do it. And that's what makes us, you know, mm. interesting. Okay. So I think that's really how I see it anyway.
0: That makes so much sense. Okay. How aware are you and the band around the time of Great Escape that there's this Oasis, you know, contest uh going on out there? Competition? Uh
2: well, yeah, it was growing all the time. I mean, progressively. I mean, Park Life had come out, and I think it'd been in the chart for a year, nearly, in the UK chart. And so there was a lot of pressure to get the next one started. And in that 12-month period, yeah, Oasis was right. And I-, I thought they were great. I mean, I, you know, the, f- the first few Oasis singles are just sort of s- s- fantastic. And the album's great, you know. So when it came to this, Oasis's second album and Blur's great escape album, um, they were also going on roughly at the same time, the recording process. Um, I wasn't privy to all this thing about you know, putting records out on the same day mm. deliberately to create uh, you know a mm-hmm. bit of drama, as it were, in the sounds mm-hmm. charts. For me, that was something that's completely outside my, my my sphere. The only thing I was worried about was delivering a record that was mm-hmm. you know good enough to match up to the standard that we put out so far. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, okay. it, well, I was very sense. aware of it, and now I, and you know, and I think it was great. You know, Oasis did Oasis did give give everyone kind of a kick up the ass. but yes. where were you to that because Swade had done that to them originally. Because mm. really with the band, I think that kickstarted the whole I mean, people hate this expression, but the Britpop Pop thing. But yes. you know, Britpop for me is guitar alternative guitar indie music that I agree. Was played by British bands. You know, that, if Echo and the bunnyman and Smiths were around, then they would have been included in
0: Britpop. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned Suede. So we have some Patreon supporters, and I always let them know who I'm interviewing. And if they want to submit questions, they can. And a few people did for you. And one of them in particular was from Simon Patience. He wants to know about, um, about the making of Swade's new morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, he said the band was in quite a state at that point. And so he asked almost about everyone in particular, there's going to be a lot of questions here. Hopefully you remember. them all. I'll read them back. Neil Codling did. How did he participate? If at all had Brett recovered from drugs uh, was Alex Lee a big influence, and was there any blur uh, blowback from the Blur camp for working with their arch rival?
2: There was no blowback from Blur at all. Okay. No. no, I mean they were very gentlemanly about that. There was no like you know, hey, why are you doing that? You know, there was nothing like okay. that. I would say Suede were in, they were a little bit in disarray. Uh, I think at the time they actually tried to be called the whole album again with another producer. I think when they do a, I think they did a a deluxe version of the album where they put out both versions, the album that I did that came out and also the demo or Got the, the previous version to be called it. They've been going around the houses a bit on it. Um, Neil had left, so he had nothing to do uh, Well, at sure. least when I started working. And that's why Alex had come in as a keyboard player. And he'd been in another band as well. I forgot which band it is now. Is it Love or something? I can not remember, remember either. A long yeah. time ago. Okay. Looking back at it, I don't think Alex was quite right for the band. There's nothing wrong with him; he's a great musician. But it just wasn't the same magic that they had that when Neil was in the band. Mm-hmm. And I just got the impression that they um, they weren't at their happiest. I think you know. I think sometimes Brett might have been considering whether he should be focusing more on a solo thing or whatever. But it has its moments and places. That album.
1: Diamonds are drops of rain Your smile is your credit card And your currency is your love And the morning is falling
2: Play where you want to play. But it's it's it, I mean compared to their other albums, I, I agree it's not as good. And and I put my great really agree, in, I
0: agree, I to agree to that.
2: But yeah. but you know, I think they'd already gone through such a tortuous period trying to record it in the first place. A lot of the energy and a lot of their enthusiasm had kind of waned a little bit
0: at yeah. this point. Yeah, I could see it's that. Shame. Um okay, speaking of potential drug-infused situations, tell me tell me about baby shambles. Because, as we all know, I had seen the Libertines in concert shortly. I think Pete had left, and Carl, Carl, Carl. Yes, Bar- oh, yes. Oh, yeah. He, uh, I saw him running the show in San Francisco. It was great. But I mean, all baby shambles, as you know, don't mean much over here. But anytime no. there's a exciting drug story like Amy Winehouse or something like that, we'll get yeah. little pieces of that. And there was yeah. some Pete Doherty stuff at the time. And you're the guy who comes in and does Shotters Nation. What what is that like?
2: I, mean, I was a huge Libertines fan. Um, I really, I thought they were fantastic. And so, yeah, being like early, mid-2000s, through through the management, you know, it was this kind of, would you like to repeat Pete Doherty and Baby Shambles? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let me have a meeting with him, you know. And yeah, it was evident to me, obviously, that he wasn't in the greatest shape. Nor was the guitar player that was with him at the time, because the, the, the original guitar player, Patrick Warden, had left
0: oh okay and he
2: was a great guitar player i'm talking about the very early baby shambles mm-hmm. stuff you know he, he he'd already burnt out due to the the drug intake of you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, of of the band mm-hmm. well i say off the band it was a really only peter and pat patrick and then patrick left and then there was another guitar player came in uh, mick and he was if anything worse i think so it was it was a dilemma it was like, well, okay, I'm de- what I'm dealing with here is, because it's funny, you know, John, because a lot of people think, oh, musicians are out of it, they're, you know, they're always on drugs. They're not, actually. Mm-hmm. But often when they're in the studio, they're really concentrating and focusing on what they're doing. They know it their, it's their, could be their last, you know, mm-hmm. kind of go at making a hit record. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, people might have a few drinks or whatever, but, you know, it's not like what we're dealing with here, which is heroin addiction. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very different kettle of fish. So for me, it was it was a baptism of fire because I've not really dealt with that before. And I've, you know, I've had problems. Yeah, you know, It was well known that Graham went through a period of being a little bit too reliant on alcohol and there'd been some kind of um, hiccups there, but nothing like this. Mm-hmm. So I just really focused on getting the best out of Peter when I could. And I was also really um, encouraged by the, the the effort and strength put into it by the rhythm section. Mm. Adam and Drew were so keen to get this record done and get it, you know, get it and capture it. And so, uh, for their sakes, I really wanted to persist with it. Yeah. But it was, a, it was, a it was a difficult, it was a difficult, you know, tricky journey. I believe it. But I believe it. But I actually think it stands up, though. I really do.
0: I think it's. A good I don't record. mind that album actually. Um, I like it better than the suede one, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. mind that album at all. Um, okay, speaking of potentially tricky environments. Uh, sugar mouse, again, I don't know who he is, but I love that. One of my listeners is called sugar mouse. He asked <laughs> about, well, he asked a few things about the cranberries, which I of course are a big part of your career as well, but in particular doing, having to come in and do the, in the end album after Dolores had passed, yeah. what was that experience like for you?
2: Well, the band had been kind of passing demos backwards and forwards uh, over the Atlantic because Delois lived over in America and obviously, you know, the the boys live in Ireland and they mm-hmm. we were working towards getting, you know, a new album on the go uh, and then Delois very sadly passed away and, and Noel was keen to kind of finish the job. So I said to him, look, just send me everything that you've got, even if it's, you know, really basic demos. I said, but one thing is clear, if it's not up to scratch, we're not going to do it because I don't want to destroy the legacy that absolutely.
3: we yeah, have. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: So he kind of collected together all the songs. Some of the ones were demos that he had sent out on forwards to Dolores. Some were demos she'd done herself with some session musicians in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I coll- collated everything. And then some songs were just really half formed, like, you know, first chorus, and that was it. So it was like, what the hell, you know, if we do with this? But we actually did manage with Pro Tools and things that I can move and cut around, and cut, mm-hmm. look, for, look for different. Vocal takes in the background, different playlists. I was able to kind of make different things up uh, out, out, out of it on some songs. Some songs are more f- fully formed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we chipped away at it. Uh, I basically got a kind of a rough rhythm cl- track, you know, clip track as it were, with her vocals and obviously the, the, the chord sequences that have been recorded. Mm-hmm. I then got the boys to come over to the UK and they played on it. Mm-hmm. So they would hear in Delois's vocal and their headphones, you know, mm-hmm. with the sketch, like the chords, the guitar, whatever. Wow. Yeah. Or, in fact, you know, Noel's demo, you know, his logic demo mm. playing, and they would play to that. And as soon as they played, and it, it sounded like a Cranberry way. Mm. you know, it was fantastic. It was it. And I went, I think we're onto something. 't i did not want to be kind of accused of, scra- of scraping the bell
0: yeah really didn't yes. Want to yes
2: um so um so we finished it and, and you know it was very traumatic for the boys i always remember the very last day we did the last track and they came in to listen back to it in this in the control room and you know back in the back in the day they would come back in and' go this is great i can't wait to play it live mm-hmm. but they knew when they were playing these songs they were never going to play them live yeah, yeah. never Ow. oh because she's gone. So oh. it was really tough for them, you know. It was really quite yes. hard, but yeah, I think I'm proud it. of it, and I actually do think it, it's a it's a good kind of, you know, it's a good kind of, in, with respect to, to Dolores. I think I don't think we let her down. I think we kind yeah. of finished in style, and I think we we you know I think we did a good
0: job on it. That's good. Do we know how Dolores died?
2: As far as I know. It was not intended, intended at all. A lot of people think it was suicide. It wasn't because Noel had, had been speaking to her a couple of days earlier, and she was in really good form. Okay. Unfortunately, she was on medication, and it was medication that she should not be drinking with. She'd had a row that afternoon with a boyfriend, went out, got steaming drunk, came back to the hotel room, got in the bath, fell asleep. sleep. Okay. okay. So but that's as far
0: as I know i really sure in, but, i don't i yeah. didn't know either that's why i thought i yeah, would ask I, it's, really, it's
2: not it's not suicide but it was yeah. really it was a, play, it's a travesty really
0: it's a yeah it over. really really is um okay i i'm curious you know it's interesting it just occurred to me in talking with you that that first cranberries album is such a beautiful piece of work and I'm realizing as we're talking that here we are talking about the blur about blur and the Smiths two of like the most important British bands ever and I bet the cranberries in America outsold both of those bands oh, yeah. when, when you're working on like the debut cranberries album are is a label coming to you saying we have big plans for these guys in oh. America or worldwide or is oh. that a surprise to you when these things take off.
2: Yeah, I mean, um it's a very interesting story there because we made the album and they've released "Dreams" and "Linger" as singles in the UK and they're both flopped. So the oh. record label didn't know what to do with the band; they were basically going to get dropped. And it's only because Jenny Cordell, the guy that signed them, was an English guy but it was based in New York, and because he kept chipping away at it and, and, and taking it to MTV. And uh, at the time. Uh, MTV, as you know, it was a pop-up music station rather than you know what it is now. Yes, and there was a program on there called Alternative Nation. I think was, I think it was every Sunday or every 120 weekend. minutes, uh, and they would just play all this alternative indie stuff. Yeah. And For some reason, they picked up on Ninga. So there's this record that I was kind of i always remember someone at the label saying to me perhaps it wasn't mixed right perhaps it was this you know it was like it, you know they, they weren't happy with it you know they didn't they tried put out half-heartedly released the singles and just gave up on it mm-hmm. and then, then the next thing you know lingers climbing the chart
0: yeah in
2: america you know on college radio and so on and, and so forth so the band get a phone call hey get yourselves over here and start playing and this record that had come out. Previously in the in in uh, Europe and UK and completely flopped, <laughs> got re-released yeah. and was all of a sudden it was like the best thing since sliced bread. Well, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. It was just like what you're telling me. A few months
0: ago, it was wasn't good enough. Now it's a smash record. So crazy. There you go. Crazy. Yeah. And then Zombie comes out. Bigger than en- everything. That's one of the biggest songs you've ever worked on.
2: Yeah, most probably. Yeah. I mean, again, it was just, we well, see with that. I mean, we're making the second album. We knew that they had some momentum. So yeah. we just had to make sure we, again, we didn't mess up and made a good Cranberries record. Yeah. But by this point, the band had been playing quite a lot of gigs and playing live. and and a lot of their songs are gentle and they wanted to play something that was a bit rocking where they could let themselves, you know, go. And there was a lot of stuff around, you know, like Smashing Pumpkins and Soundgarden and all these kind of bands that were kind of inspiring them. And they wanted to rock. They wanted to let rip. And I was like, great, let's have a bit of fun. So when we did it, I never thought it would be a single. I just thought it would be one of the, you know, the heavy album track, uh-huh, you know.
3: Uh-huh. So there was no
2: pressure. We didn't go in there, oh my God, it's got to be a smash single. It's like, no, we just had fun with it, yeah. you know, I've got to, I was just—I said to him, come on, let's make it like a smashing pump, pumpkins record. Let's make yeah. it just really dirty and like yeah, you know." makes sense. And That's then, and then, like. bang! It just took off and took on the life of its own. You know.
0: Wow! Wow! Interesting. Okay. Speaking of female-fronted bands, I really like the albums you made with um, the uh, Darling Buds, especially mm-hmm. Crawdaddy. Is it Crawdaddy or Crawdad? Suddenly, I'm yeah, trying. Crawdaddy. Crawdaddy, yeah. yes. those two albums i know it was i know and they never really did much they got some play on like college radio over here but that was about it but i especially like the crawdaddy album how does a band you know you don't you just talked about investing in a band like cranberries not knowing that they're going to go on to be huge and then a band like darling buds you probably went in with the same mind frame
3: Exactly,
0: and that one John. Take I off.
2: give just as much effort on everything I work with it can be a band I've had previous top 10 singles with yes. or a brand new band and I've never made a record before I put in just as much effort and concentration uh, as, as anyone would and, and exactly. you know the thing is that when you do that it's really frustrating and, and upsetting when it comes out and no one takes any notice you know yeah. it really is I mean there's another band I work with called Tiger that I really liked and I made a record with them and I was that. really I was like oh I really love this band and You know, nothing happened to it. It was oh. just like heartbreaking, really. But uh, yeah, it happens. You know, and for whatever reason, the stars aren't aligned, or whatever. Yeah. It just you know it's out of your control sometimes you know
0: that's a shame were there i mean i guess other than college radio darling buds i don't think got much of any no um, i mean over here they disappeared
2: pretty quickly you know really there
0: too yeah 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 Mm -hmm. i love them um okay tell me about how you got brought on to do the new order album waiting for the sirens call I don't. Uh, We just got done talking about all these great chiming guitar bands. That's not necessarily what New Order is. uh, I do think "Crafty" is one of the great lost New Order singles. so how did you get brought on to do that one that album?
2: they've been working on the demos and things i think for this record i mean they i knew all to spend a long long, long time on their records well they were back then anyway i mean they'll be chipping away at it for, for ages mm-hmm. and i think they kind of got to a bit of a, a bit of a roadblock as far as things were going and they wanted to kind of kick start the album and i don't know they reached out to me and asked me if i'd be interested and i said well. I'm really the, the, the nord that I really like is around the time of uh, low life.
0: Yeah, that's, I uh, think, I, the like best cool. order album. So, yeah. the
2: nord period I really like is low life, you know. I mean, and, you know, and I wanted. to so say, if we can do that with a little bit more guitar on
3: it, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. I'd be really up to it. And that's what I'm good at. I'm not great at doing sequences and synthesizers, you know that, boys. That's not my thing. But if you want to do that, just do that. Mm-hmm. So, the idea was, was to do that album that way. Halfway through the album, Barney starts going off into a lot of room on his own and doing doing you know, all these new tracks where it's nearly all kind of sequenced and kind of it's all synthesised and everything. And by the time we get to the end of the album, some of the stuff that I'd recorded with New Order, you know, the guitar stuff, it gets pushed to one side, and that album kind of changes colour at the end. It's not, it's not how it wasn't really how it was intended, as far yeah. as I was concerned. But it's Barney's thing, you know. It's it's his band, you know. Well, yeah. it's, it's Steve's band, and you know. Hookies band too but it was just wherever at the end it was a bit i it just didn't it was unsatisfactory and a bit unsatisfying i think at the end it didn't quite deliver you know but um they're
0: so good that's interesting because the one the wasn't the album before that was get ready the album before that yeah, which had which, a good
3: smash 8
2: single on it, didn't
0: it? It had uh, yeah, great- Crystal yeah. and and uh, well, that was a really heavy, like guitar heavy album. I thought the Get Ready one, and you mentioned Smashing yeah. Pumpkins. I think Billy Corgan does a song on there. So I'm yeah. surprised you feel like the perfect guy to mix the two, the dance music with the guitars, yeah. but, but still,
2: whatever. I mean, you know, it's a shame. Yeah, because I'm a huge Order fan. You
0: oh, know? same.
2: And I was really, you know, excited to work with them, and and actually, it was quite an enjoyable experience i mean again you know after that album hooky left but yeah. at the time in the studio that they seemed to be getting on fine you know i mean there's, a
3: little, I there's
2: a little bit of head you know like you know mm-hmm. between barney and um and hooky you know there's a little bit yeah. of head boy kind of fighting for, to be you know, the louder one in the, in the room but apart from that i mean yeah, i just took that as normal kind of band politics you know it wasn't anything that i hadn't seen before but anyway it was one of those things that um it, it was a shame but it, it yeah. didn't, didn't quite work yeah so
0: interesting really. okay um you brought up this the furs earlier i wanted to ask you about them My, did you rec- did you produce you produced the or co-produced i believe the world outside album right yeah. and that's got uh, until she comes On it, which is one yes. of my favorite uh, psychedelic furs album or songs, and I think you did "All That Money Wants" yes. on the greatest hits package, right? Yes. So, what's it like working with them at that stage? That's unfortunately, again, we're t- <laughs> I didn't mean for this, but "World Outside" is kind of a post-peak period psychedelic furs yeah. album too. Things are kind of on the downward slope. Are you well, aware of actually, that as you're making this? I stand this? by that album. I, I do too. I that love album. that album. You
3: know,
2: I, I, I really do. I mean. They'd lost, as far as I'm concerned, they'd lost their way a little bit with the heartache stuff, you know, the Keith force he produced that very slick I agree. American, you know like snare drum uh, Lynn snare drum blah you know it just but it there was moments when it was great I mean, you know, um heavens brilliant. I love that track,
0: yes. That, yes, that
2: but I think after that, for me, they kind of went a little bit too slick and it all went. And I love the darkness of the early first stuff. I mean, particularly, I love the talk 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 album, which is, you know, for me, is that it's their pinnacle that's a beautiful mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. so i was very really keen to get back to that sound again yes. so again it was like going to work with the, a real drummer not a drum machine we're going to make it so that the real drummer if it's slightly loose it is mm-hmm. loose it's not going to be you know quantized and everything kind of fixed into this kind of mm-hmm. on a grid and i tried to make a record sound like the first in my mind should sound yeah. and that was yeah. it really yeah
0: it was i simple love it as that really that was like, that was my yeah you know, it's so interesting you bring up the drumming because, as I mentioned, Until She Comes feels like a song built on a drum pattern. Is there? Yeah. – I'm blanking on the whoever was playing drums at the time. I don't remember. Is he playing a that drum pattern, that entire song, or are you looping yes. something that he's done?
2: No, no, he's playing it. It's <speaking in> yes. It almost sounds yeah, like a hip-hop drum, beat yeah, yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. It's just a kind of snare kind of pattern. Beat, oh, you know, wow. Play
0: so I mean, there, okay. are, there
2: are some loops on that album. don't get me wrong i mean at the time everyone was using loops but not that particular no. track i mean there's some no. other tracks i think we yeah, have valentine i think has got a, a loop on it and stuff but okay but um but but you know but, it's, but particularly with all that, all that money once for instance and that was my first one i did with them that was yeah. for me it was like okay guys i'm not gonna get you make i just want you to sound a little bit dark again you know yeah. not so
0: lots of glossy. you did it you totally did it um tell me about working then with the pretenders um i i don't I know. I think the first one you produced on your own would have been "Last of the Independents," right?
2: Some of the tracks on that record, yeah, okay. not, all, not all of them, but some of them, yeah.
0: Did you do Hollywood Perfume? God, I can't remember. I think oh, it's I might, fine if you don't. Without looking at all the credits, okay. I can't. I really can't remember. that album
2: That's is quite a lot, a lot of different people. But They're I got. Awesome. I mean, again, what happened with that that job is like I tell you, what happened there. So Chrissy was managed by my manager, Mike yeah. Galgolson and she wanted to do a, a track for jimmy hendricks tribute album yeah and, and at this time the pretenders were kind of like half in hiatus martin the drummer being kind of kicked out the band for a bit or he'd left or whatever i don't know but she wasn't working with him mm-hmm. and she had this session drummer uh kind of playing in the band and i walked into the studio to do this session i thought i might as well do it it's you know a asked me She said like, chrissy wants to record a track you know, She's like to meet you. It's a great way to work together, you know, mm-hmm. without any major pressure of being involved in an album, you know, because it was her track on the Jimi Hendrix tribute album. And I walk in, and this drummer's got this huge drum cage, with all these toms around it. And I went, You're not going to need any of that, mate. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, I want you to play with like how Marching Chambers or Mitch, you know, from the, 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 the Jimi Hendrix. Um, yeah. um, Mitch Mitchell from the, uh, the Hendrix uh, trio. One bass drum, one tom, one floor tom. I said, because I'm not my all that long. <laughs> 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 and it didn't go down well with him, but she uh, loved it.
0: <laughs> great. So I was in. If I was that Chrissy, I know. <laughs> you've had a long partnership with her. How do you how do you produce Chrissy Hind? Does she look at you as an equal, like a collaborator? Like, do you bounce yeah, I, ideas I off Christine, each other? Or is she so of her own? You
2: know I love her she's great she, uh, but she doesn't suffer fools gladly mm, so I can if, see that so you've got to you can't say that's not working and just leave it like that. Mm-hmm. She will go, okay, what do you think then? You know what I mean? You've got to you've got to be proactive with your criticism. Like even in the very early rehearsals and stuff, you know, you've got to come up with something, give her something to kind of you know feel like she's getting some feedback from you. Mm-hmm. You know she uh, but also she doesn't like doesn't like it, I think, if you allow her to walk all over you. You've got to be tough, yeah. you know, you've got to stand up to it. She's a tough cookie herself, you know, so I get on great with her, though. I mean, I managed a very, as I said, I managed to very quickly establish a kind of working relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And I think the world of her, I think she's wonderful. I mean, and it's funny thing, you know, it's like, we all know how great Chrissy Hines' voice is, and yet she's adamant sometimes that she hasn't got a voice at all. She, she'll be doing a vocal, and I'm thinking she's brilliant, and she'll come in <laughs> and go, that's awful, I can't live with that. And I'm going, well i'm gonna keep it just for the time being because i think it's really good Ah. you know but she's really like she's really hard on herself yeah really she's really hard on herself when it comes down to her performances wow sometimes you've got to say chrissy it is good enough
3: Leave
0: it. (laughs) classic (laughs) you mentioned kaiser chiefs unfortunately they don't mean a whole lot over here no i know Uh, know. you know know. ruby gets some play and it maybe a little bit but yeah. how do you i mean they are they're huge over there how do we well, they, get they were. kaiser yeah, I mean, chiefs I mean, over here or yeah were how do we get them you know over, are they even still together i don't know
2: uh well they're still together although the chief songwriter in the early days nick mm-hmm. uh the drummer uh is he left a long time ago he left about four or five years ago like, okay. perhaps even more now actually perhaps even more uh so um more like perhaps eight years now but the first two albums yeah i was involved with those first two albums
3: yeah.
2: and the first album in this country went six times platinum i mean that's the kind of figures that you dream about these days But yes. yes. it had four or five smash hit top 10 singles on it you know that really was an album full of bangers it, you yeah know, i was talking earlier on about blur like we awfully totally. putting things on there to be you know arty and whatever mm-hmm. no that one was like it was like bang 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 you know like mm-hmm. and at the time i was working with new order so i couldn't do the whole album with the kaiser Chiefs. so i could only i was only able to do what well, i say only able to do but i did all the, the singles on it yeah you
0: know? nice good for you
2: so, you know, <laughs> waves goodbye to half the album royalties. but there you go, that's story. But, um, but anyway, uh, but yeah, it was six times platinum. I mean, it's unheard of now, you Yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. only Adele gets those kind of figures, you know?
0: Right, right. Yeah, I wish I bought employment when it came out because uh, I had heard such good things and um, and stayed on for a little bit and then kind of, they just, like you, like we were saying, they don't make a ripple really over here. And so I kind of lost yeah. touch, yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. that's great. Okay. Somebody else I want to ask you about the long pigs. Um, mm-hmm. You did their follow-up album. The sun is yeah. off and out is mm-hmm. a fantastic record and mm-hmm. mobile home, which you came on for the second one kind of floated away into nothingness. And then they broke up. I think after yeah. that, what yeah. was the, I'm guessing like Crispin is the lead singer and he's come, and Richard Holly's in this band. He goes on yeah, to have yeah. a really great solo career. When they come in for the second album, is it a software or a sophomore slump where they're not sure what they even want to do? Or are they like a head full of steam?
2: Looking back on that record, I'm again I'm very proud of it. I, I think there was a bit of a power struggle going on between ah. Crispin and Richard to a degree. Mm-hmm. And um they weren't in an entirely happy place, but they knuckled down to you know, making a decent record. And I think we did it. I think it's got some, you know, a, a, I think is it Razors in the Snow? It's one of my favourite tracks. Oh, that's a good
0: color. one. Blue Skies but, is also really good. Yeah,
2: it's just wonderful. I mean, like, you know, um, Crispin's got a great voice. I mean, really, the range he's got is amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, I, no, I'm very proud of that record. I mean, it's a deep cut, so I, I, I applaud you for knowing that one because a, a lot of people don't even mention my kicks when they talk well, about my discography.
3: No, but,
2: right. um, I think yeah, yeah i mean it's a great record uh and and it, got, it came out again i think it got released from vinyl for the first time um, oh good early on this year in the uk anyway so okay. it was nice to actually play that because i haven't played it in ages so it was nice to get a vinyl copy of it and play well it.
0: it's not streaming i don't know why sun is on spotify but mobile home is not it's not, not here anyway right? not no, in right? america no it's kind of it's oh. pretty obscure over here yeah um okay one or two more and then i'll let you go because i uh boy this if you can't tell steven i've been heavily invested in your career for most of my life so this is a this is a real treat um okay tell me about working with madness because when i think of madness producers i don't necessarily think of you it's a a marriage of two of the things i love the magic combination exactly clive's been on here before
1: as i sometimes do I turned around, it was time to go A face in the crowd, a face I didn't know We got to talking for a little while You said it's not the sort of thing you usually do Talking to strangers so late in the night These days you never know Well, I thought you were nice, I even told you so But you smiled so shyly and said to me I bet you say that to all the girls you meet But it isn't so Yes, the club was closing so we had to leave We walked out together just a little at ease I would have liked to have walked you But that was,
2: like, 2009, 2010? I think so. a long time ago? I mean, but, yeah, again, they, they approached me. They kind of said that i have been on the periphery of their thoughts for a while to work with. Would I work with them? Again, I think they've been through a bit of a complex point of making a record, you know, too many heads in the room clashing. They just need one person in there to say, yes, no, shut up. Let him have a word. You know what I mean. That kind of thing. You know, because a lot of production is man management. It really is. John, it's not just how good you are with the, you know, the knobs on the desk and the, you know, a lot of it is man management. And and that album for me, a lot of it I seem to remember being like, yeah, I was like, you know, because I'm roughly the same. I think I might be slightly younger than them, but we're only by a year or two. So we're the same generation, and they needed someone they respected that would kind of like, but at the same time be say, you know, be able to say, no, come on, give them some space, we'll give, you know, give that person a little bit of leeway here. Mm-hmm. And um and we got it done. And I actually think the record again is 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 a fine record. Do and do if it right. had come out, you know, 10 years earlier, I think it would have been a huge hit for them. But they just were we all know, I mean people love Madness and they want to go and see them play live, but they all want to hear those hits from the, yeah. that that yeah. long ago. They're not necessarily interested in what they do now. It's a shame because the band are really creative. Yeah. And they're
0: writing they really great are. songs,
2: but no one really was there. <laughs> you oh, know, it's frustrating. It's it a shame. It must be really frustrating for them.
0: I believe it because they continue to put out really good stuff, including that album, Wee Wee CC Ya da. Yeah, it's like words for yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I found a clip on YouTube of you and a band called Bim.
2: Leisure time. How people spend their time and. You know, what, what silly things we don't have.
1: Come on, you're on
0: and it's mm-hmm. from it's a clip from a documentary called listen to london or something like that from yeah yeah, yeah. that's when i was in a band myself yes and you you, <laughs> you loud mouth and shoot off <laughs> you have like a 10 second 20 second speaking clip on there. So there would, I mean, if BIM had taken off, we would never know Stephen Street, the incredible producer.
2: Yeah, it was a frustration of that all coming to an end and not knowing what to do. So I I knew by the end of the the, the life in BIM that I wanted to be in the recording studio um, and and hopefully progress from being, um, I I thought if I learned to become a good recording engineer... Perhaps I can follow in the footpath of, of Steve Billy White, Martin Russian, mm-hmm. John Lecky, all those great engineers that have progressed mm-hmm. to production. And, well, fortunately, it worked out. But it could have you know, could have gone the other way, but fortunately, it did work out. It did. But Yeah, and, and, and the other person that came out of BIM was Cameron McVeigh, who went yes. on to marry Naina Cherry and exactly. the massive attack and all that stuff. So yeah. two good things came out of that. Totally. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily right for BIM as a bang, but, you know.
0: Yeah. It is near the top of my interview wish list, I think she's so interesting and I don't hear a lot of interviews with her. Who would you like to produce? Now, when I say, who would you like to produce? I don't mean like who, what artists do you like that you, who do you, when you listen to them and you think I could do wonders with this person, is there somebody that comes to mind?
2: I always kind of regretted that I never had the chance to make an REM album.
0: Oh, that makes sense. That jangle, that makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, but also,
2: yeah, just, just I mean, I, mean, I love Michael Stipe's voice, and yeah. you know, I just love the band. I think they're great, I and mean, the musicality. So, yeah, that was kind of in an alternative world, perhaps, you know, back in the early 2000s, I made an OEM album, who knows? And I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, that's yeah. the band that kind of comes to mind straight away, as it
0: were. Yeah, yeah. That makes so much sense. I had Don Dixon on here a few years ago and he produced their early albums. And I, it's funny, I was thinking about him when I was getting ready to talk to you because I made the comment with him, like how do you find that jangle sound? Is there like a knob on the desk that says jangle and you just turn it all the way up? But it's not. It's in the fingers, it's in the tone, yeah. it's in the and and you guys you and he are the two people I think of when I I mean you've done more than that as we know. But when I think of like that perfect jangly sound, I think of you and Don Dixon.
3: Oh, well, you're very
0: kind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Stephen, if you can't tell, I love you so much. Thank you Thank for you all can. the good you've put in the world because it right. has shaped send my life. Link to the, um, send me a
2: link to the uh, your podcast when you when you get it all cut I will. together. Yeah? And I'm I will. sorry
0: if I rambled on a bit too much in parts. Oh, but, but, this was yeah. gold. Gold. Okay. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Stephen. All right. There you have it. Stephen Street the great Stephen Street, and the fifth of the seven Stevens. Uh, as I've mentioned before, my goal this year was to have seven of the biggest and my favorite producers named Stephen on the show. And all we have left are Lipson and Hillage. Lipson might happen. Hillage, I'm not so sure. We'll see. Um, one of the people that I asked him about that didn't really... It wasn't a, that interesting of a story or anything, was Stephen Duffy. And... While he was telling me about Stephen Duffy, he did make sure to tell me how much he loved this song right here, Autopsy. So I for sure wanted to close out the episode with Autopsy by Stephen Duffy, who's a fantastic songwriter if you don't know. Um, Now, next week's guest is is one of the icons of New Wave music. When you look up New Wave in the dictionary, or in the encyclopedia or whatever, you're likely to see this person's picture there. If it's not the first picture, you're going to see it's one of them. So that's what we have coming up next week. And this week, later this week, I put out an episode recently where I was on my buddy Mike's podcast, Retro Rock Roundup, talking about the Doobie Brothers. And some of you may have heard this one, some of you haven't. I was on another one of my buddies' podcasts, Nick, um, Rock in Retrospect, with our other good friend Hayden from the NXS Access All Areas podcast. And Hayden and I talked with Nick about NXS for like two and a half hours and why they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm going to put that episode out in our feed as well. If you've already listened to Nick's, you won't need to do it again. But if you're interested, check it out because it's a really good inform- uh, really good uh, conversation. Hayden knows like everything about NXS and that's so it's worth it for that. Huge thanks, as always, to Yaniman Makiewicz, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything. Folks, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.